Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 508, Uber Confessionals, Bo Jackson and other stories with Jeff Perlman. podcast i'm frank joined as always with eddie eddie how are you today yeah doing really well and obviously you know this episode for listeners who are joining specifically for our talk with uh, best-selling author jeff perlman uh you know that as usual that interview will kick in around the 30-ish minute mark uh but great to have the chance to speak to him and and we have a lot of diverse interviews but it's you know it was a chance to kind of rapid fire cover a wide range of topics from Bo Jackson in his latest book to Brett Favre, Donald Trump, Herschel Walker, the Lakers were kind of all over the shop, but some really HBO, Adam McKay. (laughs) Yeah. Some little interesting insights into each one of those topics. So a great discussion, even if I know a lot of our listeners might not be that familiar with Bo Jackson, if you're not American, not a figure widely known outside of the US. So a good chance to hear you some of the reasons why he had, he holds such a mythical status. Uh, within U.S. sort of sporting and athletic history, and then also just a number of other topics. I'm sure most people have heard of Donald Trump, so they'll at least have they'll have that one that they'll be familiar with the names involved. Yeah, and a pretty exciting weekend of sport. Uh, we talked about, I think it was last week you mentioned one of the rare times that all four sports are going on at once. In the and, U.S., yeah. The, in the U.S. And this, I think, weekend was a big event because you had baseball has progressed now uh, with the Phillies dominating, the Astros dominating. Uh, not that we'll really cover that, but <laughs> um, no, although I was surprised, obviously based in Paris on Sunday night, um, you know, in a bar that usually is NFL heavy. Uh, there were a lot of people in to watch the Phillies. I mean, at least 40, maybe 50 people most of whom were on holiday from Philadelphia who'd sought out a bar where they could watch the game. And it was starting at around, I guess, 1030 at night here. It went on till, you know, fairly late in the, in the early in the morning. And it was one of the better atmospheres I've experienced in a bar in Paris sports wise in quite a long time. So the Phillies fans deserve a little bit of credit in that respect. And we, every once in a while, we don't, we don't spend too much time talking about baseball. I think overall, I was a little bit disappointed by the baseball coverage in the playoffs this, this year because so much of the focus was on how the upsets could ruin the playoffs, which I think is always disappointing if you're not a fan of one of the big teams. Like, it's just a, a kind of disappointing narrative. But we like to occasionally make mention of people who have some interesting bets going or some you know, long shots that they've managed to ride. I don't know if you saw that there is a man who put $50 in April on the Astros to beat the Phillies in the World Series. And wow. it, and it, so if the Astros come into the World Series as favorites, uh, they're undefeated in the playoffs so far, I believe, and seemingly the best team in the baseball at the moment. And if... Yep. If, they they if, seem to be beating the garbage can drum to a championship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If they win from that $50, he will win $125,000. Wow. That's a good bet. And he has come out and said that he is not hedging. (sighs) Why don't these people learn? (laughs) (laughs) 
It's such an easy one. I like it. Even if you say you're not hedging, I don't expect you to truly hedge the $125,000 because that's going to take, you know, putting a yeah. significant amount of money down, which even if you, I can understand in your head doing the calculation of, you know what, I originally bet $50 and I don't go on to go through the pain of finding $20,000 to put down on a, as a bet to kind of make this a worthwhile hedge. But you would think that maybe, I don't know, put $1,000 on the Phillies to win, get back 2500 or whatever, and then at least you can say, hey, that was a great return on my $50 bet. And, you know, but good luck to him. I guess if you're if you're him, you just have to hope. Maybe you hedge later. Maybe if, like, in a dream scenario, he's got to hope, like, the Astros are three, you know, three up in the series, and then he can have a, a safer hedge, I guess, like a longer odds. But I would certainly be hedging if I were him. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the reason, well, I would say most of the reason why that bet is going to potentially win so much money is the Phillies did have the longest playoff drought in the National League. The last time they had made the playoffs was 2011. Uh, so they have snapped that streak. They're no longer the the longest drought in the playoffs. And they were the sixth seed. So uh, Philly fans can be annoying in the best of times but when you paint them as an underdog rising they become exponentially more annoying so it's been it's been quite the uh like now everyone in philly is a philly fanatic right and i mean maybe they were you know philly they do love their sports team so maybe they're they were always on the phillies and never were off them but it is quite annoying to see people who never even post about baseball are now you know philly do or die it's it's it can be a little much, but I mean, good good for them. As a six seed, that's pretty cool to see. You know, your team make it all the way to the the World Series, and it be a, it would be a good upset. Uh, not for that guy, that would suck for him, but for <laughs> for people in Philly, that would be a nice win and a great upset. <laughs> yeah, look, and there's always going to be bandwagon fans, right? No matter which team and which sport, you know, that's always it goes with the territory, so that's to be expected. And then. I sort of transitioning away from baseball, obviously not a sport we spend too much time speaking about, but maybe moving into, you know, we obviously later on, we talk a little bit about uh, politics and how politics and sports can collide. News coming out ahead of the upcoming World Cup in Qatar, which is obviously only a few weeks away at this point. And Qatar's government uh, released the news that they will require all World Cup visitors to download a data tracking app on their phone. Uh, the apps, they have two, they have a choice at least, um, one called Etheraz and one called Haya. And they track, you know, they get to spin it as being COVID related. So they will track uh, COVID interactions and games that you're attending, but they can also share, they can also share data with any, with sort of administrators of the apps of any data that's on your phone manipulate content that is appearing on your phone and override your existing phone software at any point in time. So that's reassuring. <laughs> that's awesome. And here I thought you were going to tell me about the drunk tanks they designed. <laughs> Which, yes, they also, they, so they will send drunken supporters to a... What did they call it? It had a really good name. I wish I could remember. I can't remember either, but it's a kind of safe area that they are preparing yeah. to let you sober up. But no, I mean, this has... It's like a sober station. <laughs> yeah. Overall, this has disaster written 
all yeah. over it. And in particular, right, you're going to get, I mean, just today you had a protester detained, claimed to be arrested seemingly as Qatar is denying this and saying that he was detained. He was released within 30 minutes. So arrested seems like a strong term, uh, but he was protesting against LGBTQ rights in Qatar and was taken away and told to stop doing it. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I think, yes, there's a very good possibility that that becomes a consistent theme over the course of the the four weeks of football. I know you love it when the topics get political. So, Well, it's not even that it's political. It's it, nothing's going to happen. You know, at this point, they're not going to stop the World Cup and people are just going to complain about this and there'll be some attention brought to it and it'll just roll over because at the end of the day, people are going to want to go see the World Cup. <laughs> And which it, is and unfortunate. Look, and that's how they get away with it, right? <laughs> oh, 100%. And look, it even puts me in a difficult position. And not me, I don't mean specifically me, but I, I would under no circumstances attend this World Cup. I think that would be too much for me. But I'd love to say I was principled enough to not watch it, but that will not be the case. I'll probably watch every single match. So, you know, and that's uh, that's annoying. I'd be even more upset if I were a player because if this is... You know, like, let's take the example of England. If this is the first time England win the World Cup since 1966, and you're one of those players who's going to go down in history, these kind of iconic moments that generations will remember forever, and you have this weird asterisk attached to your World Cup in terms of, oh, yeah, that was the World Cup that probably shouldn't have been played there, and there were all these, you know, other off-the-field issues that surrounded its Obviously, you're going to still love winning the World Cup, but it would be disappointing that you couldn't win it A, I think if you win a World Cup, you really want to win it in a kind of iconic venue. You know, you want to be able to say you lifted it at the Maracanã or, you know, the Camp Nou or or Wembley or, sorry, the Spotify Camp Nou or whatever it is now. But to be lifting it in Qatar, not quite the same experience. And then to throw in everything else, the kind of additional baggage, just it would be disappointing as a player. Do you mean the Lucille Iconic Stadium? (laughs) <laughs> yeah no yeah it's not a good sign when you have to look up what will the final of the world cup but like what will the venue be for the final of the world cup that's not a great sign that you're you've maybe chosen the correct location yeah. um, but it's no, beautiful i'm sure and look i'm sure there'll be a lot surrounding the world cup that will be amazing but uh yeah it's it's not not what i would be most looking forward to but then maybe we can transition from disappointing venues to an eventful weekend of NFL games and some disappointments for some involved. I guess the big talking points going into this week, Matt Ryan, no longer the starter for the Colts, although unclear, they now kind of claiming that he's injured. So he's not really, but they said he'll be benched after. Yeah. So they said he's, he's not starting because he's injured, but once he's not injured, he's now benched. (laughs) So he's not benched this week. It's like getting, but when he goes back, then he's benched. It's like getting pre-fired. Yeah. Like being called into a meeting with your boss and you'd be like, oh, am I getting fired? No, you're not getting fired now, but we will be firing you in a month, no matter yeah. what happens between now and then. Um, and then, I mean, the real talking point, right, is the the demise of Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and, and just the mess that is Green Bay and Tampa Bay. We spoke about it last week. You asked me which one of them I had more confidence in, in terms of their ability to resolve the situation. I said Tampa Bay. 
I'd still stand by that. I think mostly just because they can easily win their division without, you know, they, it's like being in a, in a like 110 meter hurdle race and they can afford to knock seven of the hurdles over, but I'm not going to be impressed and they're not going to be in a good situation when they move on to the next round of the competition. But I think they'll probably still win their division, but it's not, if this is Tom Brady's last season, he came out and said, not retiring. He didn't add on when like that statement was applied until if this is his last season, it's a sad way for someone to go out after such a long period of dominance. It's the first time he's been under 500 going in after seven weeks since 2002. So just a, a sad way to short leave. 20 years. Yeah. Sad way to leave. If this is him leaving, I still don't think he's leaving at the end of the season, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, this has got to be one of the low points of his career to just get demolished by a Panthers team that is literally, I mean, to to kind of allude to Game of Thrones later, sending out Ravens to sell their players to whoever will buy their players right now. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like a free sale. It's unbelievable. And to to not even just lose to them, to just 21 to 3. I mean, that is awful. Pathetic. And I Maybe the saving grace, if you're a Buccaneers fan, is that you can say on that opening drive, had Mike Evans caught that pass that was clearly a touchdown pass in his hands, this is an entirely different game and they win this game. But you know what? You can't say that because it didn't happen and now the Bucs are three and four. No, And I think that it probably is the case. I think if that's a touchdown, they probably go on to win. They may even go on to win comfortably. And then there's no talk of any crisis in Tampa Bay. So it, it does show how, you know, that I mean, they kind of deserve to lose over the course of that game. So it's a weird one to say that one drop pass. It's the most open dropped by any receiver so far this season in terms of distance between himself and any defensive player. So it was a bad one. But... No, I don't think uh, – I think they'll figure things out, not in terms of being Super Bowl contenders, but just because they'll be able to scrape their way through that division. I think that the the Packers are done for. Like, I think they've now given themselves such a mountain to climb in terms of catching the Vikings that the Vikings can now afford to slip up on multiple occasions, which they probably will do because it's Kirk Cousins and the Vikings. Because they're, they're the Vikings. <laughs> yeah, but they're not going to do it enough to actually fully open the door for the Packers. You mean they won't lose the Giants, the Jets, and the Commanders back to back to back? <laughs> Probably not. Probably, but who knows? It's the Vikings. Who knows? And then yeah, I, guess, I mean, okay. for, I guess for me, I, I mean, I don't know why, but you're right. I still also have more faith in the Bucks, even though that could have been one of the worst performances in the NFL this season. For some reason in my head, I still have slight faith in the Bucks, And maybe I think part of that too is I rate the Vikings higher than I rate the Saints, who are two and five, you know, so that Bucks division isn't looking great right now. Maybe, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I am not confident that either of them make the playoffs at this point. 
because I know we say that they can turn the ship, right? And the Bucks are only three and four, but they're already three and four. You could also say they're already three and four, and they now have the Ravens, the Rams, and the Seahawks back to back to back. But the reason why, when I, again, when I think they'll write the ship, I, th- I mean that in terms of making the playoffs, winning that division, right? And so, yeah, I think they could have a rough few weeks ahead of them because they do have a few difficult games in the, in the, in the upcoming weeks. But you really think the Falcons or the Panthers are going to win enough games over the course of the season? I know the Falcons have had a really nice start, but the Falcons aren't good. The Panthers, no. as you said, the Panthers are actively trying to lose. Yeah. You know, so I mean, and you know what? They're not even good at that. No, yeah. <laughs> they failed at everything they've tried this season, including yeah. losing. But I, you know, it, it's really a case of can the Falcons kind of maintain uh, their? And, and I, think I, the, I still think it's got to be the Saints. I understand they're two and five and they don't look good, but I would pick the Saints over the Falcons. And I'm like, the Saints are two and five, right? But the Falcons are three and four. So it's not like it's, they're out of it. They're one game ahead of them at this point. No, but in teams that you don't think are good being one win better, maybe even two wins better, depending on how those tiebreakers go. Maybe That's, that's a tough ask, right? Yeah. So the NFC South has just completely flip flop with the NFC East. <laughs> yeah, no, that's season. true. Yes, yeah, absolutely true. Um, and then, I mean, maybe if they want to write the ship, I don't know if you saw, but uh, maybe they were given the game plan by uh, Smith Schuster. I don't know if you saw after in his press conference following the Chiefs win, part of what he credited as to why the Chiefs offense has managed to kind of click back into gear is because they were of the war zone games that have been taking place and him and Tra- Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes playing or Call of Duty Warzone together, and just as a squad, the communication really being on point online, and they're able to then translate that into a more effective performance on Sundays. Maybe. Or maybe Patrick Mahomes is just that good. <laughs> maybe. And, and hey, look, Sam and I used to play Warzone together, and he quit Warzone and quit the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> who knows? I, I never would have guessed you guys played Warzone together because the communication on the podcast was atrocious, which is why we had to get rid of them. <laughs> it was yeah. like it was like talking to a melted snowman. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. So I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up that Chiefs game because the Chiefs obviously looked great against the defense that is one of the better ranked defenses in the NFL. But that makes me not want to talk about the Chiefs, but to talk about that Niners division where the Seattle Seahawks are now leading that division are the only team above 500 in the division of the Niners, the Rams, the Cardinals and the Seahawks. I'm not worried. You're not worried what? (laughs) I think the Niners are winning that division. You know, I Bold. think obviously we haven't spoken about the Christian McCaffrey trade because that, ha- that happened right after we recorded our last episode. It came as, I think, a surprise to most people and very sudden, seeing that that situation progressed rapidly to now have Christian McCaffrey on the team. He obviously played on Sunday in, in somewhat limited usage, but still had some nice plays, looked as if you could see how he could be a good fit. I think if you're Kyle Shanahan, you're just excited at the prospect of having such a versatile running back. 
And, you know, for someone who isn't so creative in the way that he calls running and passing plays and the packages that he uses to have someone like Debo Samuel, who's a wide receiver who can play running back and Christian McCaffrey, who's a running back who can play wide receiver. That gives you so much ability to kind of toy with how the other team's lining up and put guys in motion and, and call, you know, kind of creative plays. I think they'll figure but that Eddie, out. Does it matter? Does it matter? You can have, you can have an all pro backfield and all pro receivers but you still have Jimmy G as your quarterback. No, no. I mean, look, if if the trades from the last 24 months have said anything about how uh, Lynch and Shanahan feel about Jimmy Garoppolo, it is very clear that they see his limitations and are well aware of them. They desperately tried to get the quarterback of the future. They've now not got him missing for the year and decided, well, we're just going to try and put ourselves in a situation where we never have to call a pass play. I mean, that's... You know, we, but we yet they still called thirty-seven, or no, way more than that. But Garoppolo threw for thirty-seven. I forgot I mean, they, that he then got benched. Yeah, they kind of had to with the way that game got out of hand, right? And I do think that's another game where, as much as the Chiefs ended up just putting their foot down in the second half and really taking control, where the Niners might look back on small mistakes they made and think if we hadn't done that, if Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't throw that incredibly dumb interception right at the end of the second half, at, at, at second quarter, and they go into halftime with a lead, you know, that changes the complexion of that game. Things like that, where you just, and look, every game comes down to fundamentally four or five plays, right? And every NFL team would be able to say, well, if we'd done that better or we'd executed there as we were supposed to, we probably would have won. But and look, I thought the Chiefs would win. I'm not surprised that the Chiefs won. Not surprised at the nature of how they won. I think they're the second best team in the NFL. It doesn't depress me that the Niners lost to them. I thought there were some encouraging signs from with, from that. I was a little bit. I'm a little bit concerned by in the last two games the Niners' defenses looked a little bit off the boil. But maybe they just needed reminding to kind of focus off on. the boil. They weren't even on the. Uh, we weren't on the stovetop <laughs> on Sunday. Well, they they started well. You had the interception early on. You know, when, started, when they, started well, 30, 30 in the second half isn't a good way to finish, though. <laughs> no, but just focus on the first half. But no, I, I, I'm, I'm confident that in the same way I think the Tampa, the Tampa Bay will win that division. I think that the Niners will win the NFC West. So, so I know this is very much fast forwarding and many people will get very upset because I'm disrespecting the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. But. I had a conversation with my dad earlier saying that it's a disappointment that the Bills and the Chiefs are both in the AFC because I think no matter who makes it to the Super Bowl, that's going to be the best game in the playoffs. Maybe. Look, there's a – I think people – I think those are the two Let me ask you – wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you. I'll, I'll, I'll ask it a slightly different way. Are you more excited at seeing the Bills play the Chiefs or the Bills play the Eagles? If it were Monday Night Football next week. Next week? Okay, Bills-Chiefs. But come Super Bowl Sunday, we might be seeing an unbeaten Eagles team going to the Super Bowl looking to have the first perfect record at a season regular season over 14 games. then who am I more excited about? Probably the Eagles being involved. We might see another team from the NFC 
make a step forward over the next few weeks and look like a serious Super Bowl contender. And there's whole storylines associated with that. Who knows? Maybe Tampa Bay figure things out and we get a Super Bowl with Tom Brady in it. And you got to get off the Tampa Bay bandwagon. <laughs> no, I'm not, on the, I'm, not on the, I'm not on the Tampa Bay bandwagon. I'm just saying, think back to last year and all of the projections we would have made about who was definitely going to be in the Super Bowl, what the best storylines would have been from the Super Bowl. And there's not a way that you and I would have sat here and said the Super Bowl is going to be Rams Bengals. So, you know what I mean? Like, we've got a yeah. long, a lot of football to be played, a lot but of time unfortunately, to go. I'll still say the best game of that entire playoffs was the Chiefs-Bills. I don't know. That Rams-Bucks game was pretty good. People forget that because it's not as exciting because people just like to get themselves all worked up over Patrick Mahomes and, and Josh Allen. That Bucks, Yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, but that Bucks, <laughs> that Bucks-Rams game, Rams game was, was a good game was a really good game too and a really good comeback and a really exciting final two minutes um you know look i I don't know it's a flawed chiefs team the bills i can get more excited to see because i think they're just more complete i might have an i might have had enough of chiefs in big playoffs moments for now because fundamentally i think we know that at some moment the system might break for them the bills i want to see them get fully tested I mean, besides maybe the Giants in the Super Bowl, I'll, I'll, that's the only time I'll amend my decision. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, we have to mention, look, I'm surprised you're not ripping into me. I was so dismissive of the Giants being in the top five in the power rankings. I still wouldn't put them there, but they're doing their best to try and prove me wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I put them there either. I'm starting to think maybe they are one of the best teams in the NFC, but I don't rank the NFC very highly. So I think that's part of the issue. Everyone is talking about next week, them playing what we just mentioned, the first place Seattle Seahawks as a big moment for them in terms of, you know, where do they actually fit in the grand scheme of, of this league? The issue is I think the Seahawks are in an inflated team. Had I think had the Giants been instead playing the Niners or even the Rams and beating them, I think it ranks higher than them beating the Seahawks, even though the Seahawks are first in that division. I still just don't think the Seahawks are a true legitimate contender. Oh, no, that Seahawks Seahawks game will prove nothing to me either way. Yeah. The Seahawks win and I won't say, wow, they're they're definitely they're better than I thought they were. They beat the five and one Giants. The Giants win. I'm not convinced. Well, they beat the team top of the NFC West standings, so they must be legitimate as well. To me, that's just a meaningless game. Now, again, over the course of the next ten weeks or however long, I guess yeah, ten, eleven weeks we have left in the NFL season, those teams might prove me wrong over a sustained period of time. But against mediocre potentially overachieving opponents that's not where they're going to convince me that i'm misjudging them yeah and i mean the seahawks best win is last week against the chargers and i don't know i'm just i'm starying to get down on my on my oh, LA chargers oh oh you're so you're you're accusing me of of still being on the tampa bay bandwagon the they have well they've circled the wagons in San Diego, in LA, and that those wagons are on fire. The, the, the Oregon Trail has been destroyed. They're all dead. 
I mean, they're still four and three, <laughs> but in a division where they have no hope, right? Like they're they're done because it's the opposite of the Tampa Bay situation. I don't. Yeah, see... but I mean, they, I think you know with the way. Yeah, I know, it's tough. I see no reason to think that they're going to suddenly fix things enough to start winning. They're obviously not going to win that division unless something no. bizarre happens with the Chiefs. So then you you're you're already in a wild card discussion. And there's actually enough teams with kind of decent records to make me think, and on the AFC side of things, to make me think that I, I just don't give them much chance of, of even, maybe they'll scrape a wild card. But even if they scrape a wild right, card, yeah. it's going to be classic. Right now, they're on, they're on the edge of a wild card right now. But why are things going to get better? I don't know. But it's sad to watch. <laughs> So much talent. And then they just lost JC Jackson for the year. They're arguably one of their best defensive players. So it's not going to get much better. But I guess we have to do a, a some Game of Thrones talk. But final sporting topic, Premier League, not too much to say. Uh, I think we can just say we're not going to be talking about Liverpool again anytime soon. They are <laughs> whatever <laughs> status I give to teams, the garbage adjacent in the garbage, they, they've... I know. Tied, you know. We've tied the bag. We've tied the bag up. It's sitting firmly outside of Anfield, waiting to be taken to the dump. We do not need to dedicate yeah. any more time to them. And Arsenal just really screwed me because I was going to come back with the question of: Are you sure that Liverpool win over City wouldn't benefit Arsenal more than Liverpool? Then Arsenal had to go out and lose lose two points that they should have secured. Yes. No, I mean, I think, as I said, I think we're just we're getting towards the, the city procession. The more serious talk is obviously the top four. Liverpool are very much in danger of not being able to make it to the top four. Whether or not Newcastle can sustain their challenge for the top four would be a little bit depressing given the, the Saudi money that backs them. Uh, but it's still an impressive recovery considering the fact that they looked pretty certain to go down at one point last season. And then, yeah, you have Manchester United showing some signs of life. And Chelsea being a bit resurgent. And we look, we had listeners contact us, one of whom I'm sure you'll be able to identify, Frank, disappointed in the fact that we did not, because of the break that we took between seasons, we did not spend much, any time, I think, talking about the change of manager at Stamford Bridge. So it is worth, we, we did not miss the fact that there is a new manager at Chelsea. And also I have not missed the fact, like a lot of different media outlets and people, that he has undergone what people like to refer to as a, a glow up, quite the change in his physical appearance from being Brighton manager to being Chelsea manager. Suddenly looks suave, well put together, sharply dressed for every match. Before it looked like he'd like just stumbled out of the pub in a tracksuit and been stuck on the touchline. Are there good luck before and afters on Twitter? Oh, yes. Again, <laughs> we'll, we'll post it on our Twitter. We'll post it on our Instagram. But it is a... You would have thought that that was a took a few years for the transformation he has undergone, and it's taken only a few weeks. Amazing what a little bit more salary and a more high profile uh, job will do for you. All right, Eddie. You mentioned City. I'm going to give you one final chance to change your opinion on Holland. Yes, he no, just scored not... a brace on Saturday. So yeah. he's now at 17 goals in 10 matches in the Premier League. This is your last chance, Eddie. I don't think he's breaking it. Okay. 
I'm not going to ask again until he breaks it in three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I don't think he's going to break it. I think he's going to be injured at some point. I think he's going to be rested more. I think it's the Champions League. You know, you have situations where right now he's being rested for Champions League matches or as is the case with the match that's going on while we are recording this being substituted sort of at halftime. That will flip when they are in the knockout stages of the Champions League. He will be rested assuming that they start to pull away a bit, which I expect them to do. He will be rested for Premier League matches, and I think that's going to be the thing that makes it more difficult for him to break that record this season. But again, I think he will eventually break that record. Okay. Yeah, there we go. And so then, our final topic before we switch over to the interview, I guess. The House of Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon finale. Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert's we upcoming. We're, we're hitting, it up, hitting it up front, so don't yes. get angry with us. This will obviously have to finale, be finale episode ten. If you haven't kind of, watched, stop. Kind of quick and skip fire. to the interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of a quick fire reaction recap, I guess. Okay. So I'll start off with what I did not enjoy because that's how I like to do things. <laughs> Story of your life. <laughs> Let me tell you what I hate right now. <laughs> I'm so glad after on previous episodes saying I had enough childbirth. Over the course of this season, that they went finale. Let's let's throw some more childbirth out there. Let's set show out another harrowing pregnancy experience. And again, I'm not saying that stuff like that doesn't deserve a place on TV and for people to understand what women go through when they're giving birth to a child. I'm not saying that. It's just maybe I don't need three of them in the season. I feel like more time could have been spent on character development and some other elements of the plot. But it feels a little bit to me like they're when they were in the writers' room. And they're like, oh, shit, we've got to fill another five to ten minutes of this episode. And we'll just have someone pop out a child and have it be pretty gross to watch. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know anything about Mikhail uh, Chapachnik, who's the showrunner for the show. But if I had a guess, I think he has a slight issue with the change in the abortion rules and is trying to put forth an image into your head because I don't... I, I mean, I'm with you, right? I understand showing it once, but to keep hitting you on the head with this, to me, to me at least, it reads as as a, oh, you want to make the rules about someone, but yet you're too squeamish to watch what really happens kind of things. Like, how far can I push the boundary on you to like call you out on it? I, I that, That's got to be my read. Why else are you doing this? Well, I hadn't even thought about it. And I would have thought they were in production right before... Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I, I maybe, think that, but you can always go back and cut. Yeah, but you still have to film multiple scenes, right? Like yes, yeah, but they do. Some... I mean, but they do a lot. They they film a lot of scenes, a lot. Uh, I want to say grosser is not the right word, but a lot more in depth, and then they can cut back to gauge what the what they think the audience can handle or will want to see. So I didn't think of it. This as This seems much. deliberate. I mean, I think it's deliberate. Of course, they didn't accidentally put some scenes. But into I think the it's TV deliberate show. as 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 slight on like a political agenda a little bit. I, I didn't really think of it in that context, and you may well be right. I didn't really think of it from that perspective. I did think of it more in terms of trying to develop these sort of strong female characters and trying to show how they have to balance, you know, sort of typical stereotypical expectations of women within the other roles that they're trying to take on and how those can For impact. Sure. One another. I, th- I thought of it from that perspective, and yeah. again, that's a that's a worthwhile message to convey. I didn't really think of it in the abortion context, but glad that that was brought up. <laughs> but no, Great, I just found it. Out of the way. I, I just found, and again, kind of moving scenes. 
I, I guess the shame to me is if you cut one of those out, I would have appreciated the, fi- the it happening in the final episode more. But the fact that it was just like, oh, here we go again. That was my thought. And so I didn't even really appreciate on how that could have developed, impacted her character development from having lost a child, Damon's character development from having him lost, having him Two lose. childs. He, well, yeah, his, but with his previous wife, he lost yeah, a child I, and his wife. <laughs> yeah, but I get the impression he didn't care about that so much. Oh no, I think he did. The the previous think, one. Yeah, I think he cared about his previous wife, the, Vala- the his Valerian wife. Well, maybe I don't know. He didn't seem too torn up about it, but uh, but anyway, we don't know. I, it's a time jump. <laughs> yes. Seventeen years forward we, to the day we after. All of his, we skipped all of his therapy sessions. We skipped but, his grieving. But yeah, and, and then I guess we can move on to the more important elements. For for an episode in which I guess quite a lot happened, I also feel like quite a lot did not, like not a lot happened. You had a lot of debating. Will they go to war? Will they not go to war? Her, Renera showing patience and trying to imply that she was not going to be the first one to start all of this conflict and to see what her allies were going to do. And then the big drama at the end with the uncontrolled dragon fight. Yeah. How terrible. Eamon's got big DE, but he can't control it. (laughs) Well, yeah. He doesn't just have big DE. He's got the big D when it comes to the dragons. But yeah, uncontrollable. Um, I guess I hadn't appreciated quite what the size difference between those two dragons was. That could have actually been the best image of the whole show so far. Season one was that one where... Uh, Luke is riding on his little tiny baby dragon and the other one is like hovering above like a 767 just like and you see how massive the shadow is above him. Yeah, it's the big one. Um, I That was kind of cool. It was kind of cool. Like, it's, it's obviously reminiscent <laughs> of a lot of movies kind of like shark yeah. attack things, right? Yeah. Um, I, I like that. I didn't... Again, the CGI is just not great. And... I've said it every week, but when you then have just experienced what they've managed to do with the Lord of the Rings TV show, it just looks pretty amateurish. And it kind of kills it sometimes for me that I do feel like I'm watching something that looks sort of 10 years old, basically, in terms of what we see consistently from TV shows and movies. I think actually episode by episode it's getting better. I didn't mind it so much here. And and it was a lot, too. I mean, it was a good five minutes of just dragons flying and it it was watchable. It was fine. I didn't have much of an issue with it. So maybe they're getting slightly better as as time goes, or maybe they put more energy into this scene uh, because they knew it was kind of the the big season finale scene. For me, I think the last two episodes were were very good. But now looking back on season one as a whole, it felt like the first eight episodes was one really long pilot. And then the last scene of the pilot is basically him, the king dying. And then episodes nine and 10 are the first real episodes of the show of, of them reacting. And I think it's just so much better. These last three, eight, nine and 10, because we've stopped that time jumping and you're seeing it. I thought it was kind of cool to see episode eight. They go visit king dies literally next day. What happens after the king dies? How do they react? Episode 10 news reaches Dragonstone, how do they react? And it's just very chronological and it's nice to see 
things happening in, in, in like an actual time series that's not, this happened. And now seven years later, here are four more kids. You know, like, I like that. I will say the other part that is slightly a hot take that I enjoyed is that we got that wet blanket of a kid off the screen because he's, he was terrible as a character and he was just not very entertaining as, as an actor, which I mean, unfortunate to him, he's playing like a little dweeby of a kid, but that kid, man, he had some low energy levels for that family. You cannot be, you cannot be a Targaryen bring in these, you know, like, oh, I don't want it energies. He, he, you knew he was a goner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, although I guess a lot of characters over the course of the series are expressly, I don't want it. I don't know. Overall, I think it's a pretty bad show. It is very much living off the name of Game of Thrones. And if it didn't have that, uh, people would be just destroying it. But because people have such a strong affinity for Game of Thrones, some people just they can't be critical of it because Game of Thrones almost defines them, right? And they've spent so long just raving about everything Game of Thrones associated, aside from the final season of the TV show or maybe the final two seasons at most. But for them to be too critical of the, the new version of it, then they really start to look worse because then it's like, oh, you didn't just hate the final season, what they did. You actually, you, you don't like Game of Thrones at all, do you? So... But I, I also think there's people out there that didn't watch the original and watch this one just to critique it and say that it's bad. Yeah, that's me. But I know. <laughs> I know. I know what you're doing. But but I didn't watch it. I went into it hoping it was good. I don't watch something hoping it's bad. Uh, and But I just thought the character development was yeah, slow. I would argue that. There's inconsistencies <laughs> in the character behaviors in a way that, that you just can't explain. And maybe that's hurt a little bit by the time jumping. But just as like from one episode to the next, they just have to seem to have completely different character traits. Uh, in addition to that, my only other thing I would say is why are all their castles so dingy? Like, why do these people live in these? Well, like, they don't dark... have electricity, Eddie. They, they have candles. <laughs> they... Like just everything. <laughs> a looks lot run... of candles. <laughs> everything looks run down. Like that's the style, the aesthetic they've gone for. Is gone like can you look as if our our family peaked like 250 years ago could, could you do that please in these renovations but then i'll tell you what i did like that the board the map board that was pretty cool yeah. when they lit that from underneath and it lit up i i hope that is a legitimate hand carved board that someone made and probably oh, took them a isn't. year to do of course it isn't. What world do you live in? I bet you it is. I bet you it is. I bet, I bet you, you it's a real prop. I bet you anything it is not. <laughs> so real quick, the last thing I'll say is the uh, book reader fans are not happy with the ending because as we've said numerous times, it's based off a fake history book. And the way that the history book still, says... Stop saying this. That doesn't make any sense. It is fictional. It can't be fictionally based off a fictional thing that doesn't make sense. Yes, it's the fictional history of, of the make rule sense. of the Targaryens. It doesn't make but sense. It makes my mind book, explode every time you say that. In the book, Amond, Amond, why I say Amond? Amond says that he went out and killed Luke. Like it wasn't accidental. It was he went out and knew what he was doing. People are like over the walls about how oh, terrible wall. of an adaptation. Is that, is that an expression? Yeah. Over in, the in walls? In Game of Thrones it is. Yeah, they got to <laughs> climb over the walls. <laughs> the walls that guard the castle. 
but like I think it add, I think if anything that added a little bit more to the character because the argument is now, you know, like oh, he's supposed to be a bad guy and it pains him now to not be such a bad guy. But I think at the end of the day, if you're let's say teasing someone in kind of what he was doing and like pushing the limits, then he's still culpable for what he did. But I don't think he's that terrible of a person that he just literally wanted to go out and just brutally kill his cousin. Like It's too hard I, to tell, right? You can't judge that in terms of how well, how good of a move that is from a character development standpoint, because we have to see next season. So if he starts next season and he's just evil all of a, all of a sudden, then it makes no sense. If we see but would, him next would it, wouldn't it have made less sense if all of a sudden he was just like an evil sociopath right from the beginning? No, because he was kind of, Im- that was implied in all of his interactions with everybody else ever since he lost I- his eye, maybe even arguably before then. He used every moment possible to taunt people. He wasn't nice to a single person. He only cared about his own self-interest. At what moment in time yes. did you go, oh, that was a nice guy? No, no, I'm not saying nice. I-, I agree with everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is, like, for instance, when he got his brother, Aegon, right? And you said, oh, I thought he was just going to kill his brother and become king. He didn't kill his brother and oh, become yeah, king. Oh, yeah, that's not an he- argument. Your argument for why it doesn't make sense for him to not kill someone is because he hasn't killed everyone. No, 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 not, no, not because he's not, not because he literally has the act of killing, but he's playing like a politician role as well. Cause I think he knows the politics really well and he knows it's not a smart I, move to just kill. Look, you're, you're just, you're just nephew. a, look, you're a Game of Thrones defender. It's fine. It's great. We, we, you can't possibly make a judgment about how good that, that sort of scene is until we see next season and whether or not that's a consistent, if he's constant, there's like next season, 18 months from now constant regret, remorse, but maybe continuing with it because he feels like he has to save face or that he has to, and maybe he turns up and says he killed him intentionally because he realizes there's no point in turning up and saying he killed him accidentally. That's what he's going to do. Who knows? Who knows how it goes? But to say, oh, I think that's a really clever bit of character development until we see what the follow-up is. But on that note, should we hand things over to our interview with Jeff Perlman and some discussion about some interesting character development of real life human beings. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by our guest, Jeff Perlman, a New York Times bestselling author, uh, journalist, and currently this week, uh, as of recording and listening time, just released a new book about Bo Jackson. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. You didn't add the most interesting part of me. Um, occupant of an Uber to the airport. <laughs> oh, yeah. That you're the first uh, person to join us via an Uber, like from an Mo- Uber. Moving yeah. car. We've had stopped car before, but never yeah. moving car. I've never done this either. At least I'm not driving now. I'm not driving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what a thrill for the Uber driver. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, what a joy. <laughs> but no, yeah, thank you. We know it's an extremely busy day for you. Uh, you're obviously promoting the release of the new book. And kind of doing the whole media run, and we're we're pretty honored, you know, the list of uh, you know media that's getting attention from you. Good Morning America, Good Morning Football, and stuff. To have the the Big Chill podcast be making that list is is you know it's a it's a nice credit to add to for us as well. Well, you guys, you know, when you pay when you pay a guest five hundred thousand dollars, you get something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just don't count. Don't don't cash that check just quite yet. That might take a. <laughs> I mean, go ahead, cash it if you want, but you might not like the result. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess on that note, Jeff, um, we kind of at some point want to speak 
more about your career and your background, but I guess with the book having just come out, it's maybe a great opportunity to speak more specifically about that. Obviously, Bo Jackson is, as you make mention of in the title of the book itself, this sort of mythical character, um, you know, with most people thinking he has the physical abilities to do pretty much anything, I guess. How did you decide to pick him as a topic for a book? And then what was the process like in terms of actually putting the stories together? Uh, well, I'm very nostalgic, sometimes to my own detriment. I, I always think about sort of posters on my wall as a kid growing up in Mayo Pack, New York, and who are the athletes I really looked up to and wanted to be like. And um, Bo Jackson was really high on that list. And I don't know why I hadn't thought of a book earlier. I really don't. It just never entered my head. And when I was thinking about a new subject, I just, I think there's something about a guy vanishing very quickly, you know, that's kind of dramatic. And it's, it's almost like a young death in a way. You know, the way we sort of uh, mythologize John F. Kennedy or Tupac or whoever. I think with Bo Jackson, the way we do that, too, because his career ended so quickly and he had so much ability and promise. And not only did it end, he pretty much vanished. It's not like you see Bo Jackson very often on TV. He's not a he's not the first base coach with like the Cleveland Guardians. He's not on Dancing with the Stars, any of that stuff. He like vanished. So I think the fact that he ended his career early and then also that he, um, you know, that he sort of just left the face of the earth just changed the way we see him and so how challenging it was it for you i mean i must be to get then actual face-to-face contact with him because he is obviously difficult and non uh, ever-present figure how difficult was that process well he's actually in the uber with me if you want no i'm just kidding he um it was very hard <laughs> it was hard i wrote him wrote him a letter sent him a bunch of books he called me up we spoke for a half hour he was very nice but at the end of that call, he said he wasn't really interested in helping, that if he ever wanted to write a book, he would do it himself. And I said, OK. And, uh, you know, I interviewed more than 700 people for this book. I, um, I got lucky. I found uh, Dick Shap wrote his autobiography with Bo in 1990. And Shap left behind all his notes, all his audio archives, all that stuff, which I had access to. So that was a lot of direct Bo Jackson information that hadn't come out and was recorded when Jackson was in his prime, 28 years old. So uh, that's what I got. But it was hard to get him. He's very guarded. So, I mean, obviously this isn't your first rodeo in writing, you know, a best, uh, a great sports book. But it sounds like the more you're writing, the more you're doing the research and the more people you're talking to, whereas most people I think would assume it gets easier as you've done them. But every, every book I see that you write, it looks like you've talked to more and more people for that book. Is that the case? Or is it actually more work, even though you're more experienced in writing it? I just think you said higher start out in minor league baseball. Well, you don't have the same expectations when you play 10 years with the Yankees or you start out at the accounting firm. You don't have the same expectations when you're running the accounting firm. You just have higher. So I always, you learn things as you go along and then you implement them and you learn more and you implement them. And hopefully I'm a much, I hope think I'm better now than I was at book one. I definitely am more dogged. So um, it doesn't become easier. It never becomes easier. You just become more tortured. And so then when you're talking about, it's just kind of a, a sense of nostalgia might influence the, the topics and the individuals that you decide to cover. In the case of Bo Jackson, then, obviously, there is that unknown quantity and quality associated with him and that, and that, myth, you know, that mythical nature. 
Was there anything that you learned as you went through this process of writing this book that disappointed you? Did he become less, less of a mythical figure throughout the process or more of one as you learned more and more things about him? No, definitely more. He definitely became more of a mythical figure because there were things he did. You know, his high school exploits were not very well known. A lot of his college exploits. I mean, there's a story. It was in his autobiography, but I just really was, was into it. One time there were like six flies sitting on a ledge and or on a table. And Bo Jackson says to her teammate, watch this. And he reaches his hand up and he catches all six. And he unfolds his fingers one by one and the flies come flying out. Now, that's preposterous, but it actually appears to be true. There's a time in high school when he hit a ball so high to left field that by the time it came down, he was rounding third base. Now that seems preposterous. It appears to be true. He ran a 4-1-3-40 at Auburn, which is true. But then when he was with the Raiders, they timed him on grass and pads, and he ran a 4-1-7-40. So, like, he's just – he is as mythological as you can be, but I think most of the stories check out. And in a big way, I'm kind of happy there is no Twitter – or no, just no access to cell phones back then. Like, I would hate it if suddenly someone said, oh, guess what? I have footage of all of these amazing things, and I'm going to show them to you. I think it would ruin the fun of it, make them slightly less, less miraculous. And maybe maybe he hit the ball, and it, it came down before he made third. Maybe he hit the ball, and it bounced around and rolled around and went in a gutter and got a guy that picked it up and served. But it's not nearly as fun that way. And I feel like with he's the first guy I've written about where you're like, the mythology is cool, and it's part of the story. A hundred percent. I do think, because I think, and it's probably part of the interest in in reading your book is kind of seeing all of these anecdotes and these stories and then trying to decide for yourself almost as to whether or not you believe them. And yeah, if you, if you, you know, were then able to just link to a YouTube video that showed you it was, you know, definitively the case or definitively not the case, a lot less fascinating. So I definitely agree with you on that one. And that is part of the sort of interest that surrounds him. I guess on that note, was there anything because there's so many famous stories about him in terms of, yes, how fast he can run, how far he could jump, all these, how far he could throw a ball, all these things. Was there any, were there any of those stories that you felt like you kind of disproved over the course of, of writing the book? There are certain stories I just didn't use because either they were kind of repetitive in his athletic greatness where, you know, there are only so many times you can tell a story of an amazing run where he, there are so many examples of it. He outran blah, blah, blah. And he came back so-and-so. Um, trying to think no because it wasn't any like it wasn't like anyone was like he made mushrooms out of his ass and turned them into soup you know it wasn't like that <laughs> it was like there's like sports stuff that people swore they saw i mean the one that i use to open the book is uh the chicago white Sox plane is on fire and i got two different versions of that story one is bo emerging from the cockpit to tell his teammates to sit down the other is bo running toward the cockpit to help the flight attendants uh, to help the pilots and I end up going with both stories and writing, maybe they're both true with this guy. You just never know, even though they couldn't both, both be true. You know, it's just like the myth of him is so fascinating. I just dove into it. So, so I guess my, my question is, after writing this, do you feel that he's the greatest athlete of all time? Just in like general athleticism, no one can beat him if you just put one-on-one. I don't even see what the argument is against it. I really don't. <laughs> I just think, I just think he's the greatest athlete who ever lived. And if you take a guy who played football, played baseball, did track, all at Olympian levels, um, he was a Pro Bowler in baseball. He was an All Star in football. He qualified for the NCAA tournament in track. Like in high school, 
he um, he won back-to-back state decathlons, Alabama State 3A championships, without competing in the last event because he didn't he hated distance running. The last event was efficient, so he just got enough points ahead. He didn't have to. He set five state track and field records. The day after winning the decathlon, as a senior in high school on a sprained ankle, he pitched his only game of the year for the baseball team in a state playoff game and struck out 13 for the win. He stole 90 out of 91 bases at high school. He set the record. He set the all-time single-season record for home runs by a high schooler. Um, 20 in 25 games. Missed seven games to do track events. I mean, it's a joke. It's all a joke. It's ridiculous. There's nobody close. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what's amazing to me, too, is you look nowadays, you know, people will talk about athletes like LeBron James, who everyone says could, you know, he could play a second sport. He could be in the NFL. But LeBron James is also, what, like 6'7", 250, just a, a massive person. And Bo Jackson, I mean, his physique, yes, he's extremely athletic, but he was only like 6'1", right? I mean, he wasn't like freakishly standout proportion-wise that – that was the reason he was dominant. It was just his athleticism overall. I mean, he was super strong and his body was a chisel, you know, like a, yeah. his body was chiseled. But um, I actually think, I think LeBron would have been, it would have been so great. I think, I'd say, I thought you were going, the thing that's sad, maybe not sad, but sucks, is like nowadays LeBron would never try to be a tight end, you know, or whoever, you know, Mookie Betts, maybe Mookie Betts wanted to play professional soccer, you know, like, you couldn't do it nowadays because we live in this era of pure specialization and it's really annoying and kind of frustrating and sad. I, I was going at it from being someone who's just not tall because <laughs> being someone just at the six foot level, I have to rely on the fact that I can, I can sprint quickly and move quickly and have good hand-eye coordination. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a running theme on the podcast. Frank has always claimed that if he'd been one inch taller, he would have played in the NFL. And so I guess the, the Bo Jackson example is, is kind of burst that particular bubble. He was six also, like, one. Six one so. isn't tiny. Six one isn't like that. <laughs> No, no, it's not short. By <laughs> I guess then kind of moving on in, in a sense more to your career as a whole uh, and a, as a kind of transition, you've obviously had the opportunity to write about some incredible individual athletes and some incredible teams. In terms of ranking where Bo Jackson is then in terms of the most satisfying or interesting to cover, I know that might be a little bit like asking who your favorite child is and each one of will have played, you know, a, an important role in your career and, and been a passion for you. But in, in, in some respects, because of that mythology, was Bo Jackson unique in covering and maybe more appealing? Or do you just find every topic that you kind of dive into as, as satisfying? You know, it's so funny. You just did something that we always talk about in journalism not to do, which is you gave me an out. Like you actually gave yeah, me an sorry. out at the end of the thing where I get, no, no, no. It's funny because I was looking for an out. It's a, it's a hard one to answer. Um, and I hate being the guy who's like, they're all special to me. But, like, you just get something out of every book that's different. You really do. Like, the Roger Clemens book I wrote was miserable. And I learned never write a book for the money. Like, you should do it. It's a bad motivator because you're going to be miserable. Unless you need the money, which I really didn't at that point. But I did anyway. Um, the Mets book, my first book, I learned how to cobble together a team book. I had no idea what I was doing. And this book... I guess that really it was this element of mythology I'd never written about before and what could have been and this in a way the sadness of that question what could have been and what could he have been what could he have become I think if I if I'm being honest USFL was probably the most satisfying book I wrote because everyone told me I couldn't do it and I just love that league and 
had been forgotten. And I feel like it just put it back on the map a little bit. But after that, Bo Jackson's right up there with the others. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question then that's not going to give you an out because okay. another reason why you've maybe kind of sort of been in, uh, you know, your work has received a bit of attention in, in recent months and years is obviously you, you wrote the book Showtime, uh, which was then adapted into the, the recent HBO series Winning Time. What was that process like? And, and was it disappointing for you in any way or entirely satisfying in how that book was then developed into a television series and how true it stayed to the story that you felt you had told. I like when people ask that question, when they say, is it disappointing at all? Let's just recap this a little. <laughs> I, I get paid a large amount of money, right? They want to take your book that came out not for nothing almost 10 years ago. They want to take your book. They want to pay you good money. They want to turn it into an HBO series starring Sally Field and John C. Riley and Adrian Brody. Oh, by the way, they're going to give you, your wife, and your kids cameos in the first episode. Um, then you get invited to a really snazzy party from your party where they send a car for you, and you're like a VIP. And your kids think you're the coolest guy on the earth. There's literally nothing negative about anything I can say about that show or the experience. It's been the ride of a life for me. It's been a dream come true. I mean, it's not even because I never dreamed this. I never even thought this would happen. I love the show. I love the actors. I get why some people think, oh, maybe this or maybe that. But like, I think the Jerry West portrayal was great. I think the Magic portrayal was great. And I think the Cream portrayal was great. I understand why they were upset. It's not a, um, oh my God, I'm having a brain freeze. It's a dramatic series. It's not a documentary, you know? And like, so they're going to take flourishes just like they do in every sports movie and TV show. But I can't, it's been, I'm not even a religious guy, but it's been the biggest blessing of my life by far. I, so, I guess well, as except a, for my wife and kids. Okay. As a, as a so follow-up then, though, directly to that, is there any frustration on your part? I mean, obviously, you you know, then you take, you see it as just a, you know, a win-win on, on every aspect. Is there any frustration when you, you, you write about topics that people are so passionate about? And may, maybe sometimes you are dispelling some of the the ideas that they have about their favorite sports personalities or their teams. Is it every, is it ever then frustrating for you to kind of deal with the actual general audience that you're interacting with who might feel as if they're, you're kind of ruining perhaps their childhood or, or an image that they have of, of someone that they care deeply about. hundred percent. Yes. But that's not just about showtime. That's about like when sweetness came out and people are upset about, Hey, what are you, why are you writing this about Walter Payton? Blah, blah, blah. Um, sure. Definitely. I don't love that. It's one of the flaws or one of the drawbacks of writing biographies is you kind of have a choice in this business. I've talked about this with all my friends who do the same job. It's like, you have a choice in this business. You can be honest and real and raw, and sometimes it's gonna hurt. And sometimes some of the things you write are not gonna be well received, or you can write a puff piece. The problem when you write a puff piece is, you know it's inauthentic and people know it's inauthentic. So there are times, I, like I knew Walter Payton was dead when that book came out. I wrote a lot about infidelity and I wrote a lot about sort of um, painkillers and depression and I knew his family would be hurt by that and I don't relish that at all I hate that but I don't really know the alternative yeah so I guess kind of getting back to the the, the showtime real quick you know you kind of talked about the the aftermath part of you know being in the episode and, and having it be a, a thrill but you also said it was 10 years after the book came out that this happened so how, how did that 
how did that all take place? And was it like out of the blue, someone contacted you? Like what was the process of going from a book that had been on the shelves for 10 years to now being an HBO show? So there's a screenwriter named Jim Hecht who's become a really good friend of mine. And he came to my house in 2014, not that long after the book came out. I was living in New Rochelle, New York. And he said, I want to talk to you about optioning this book. Came to my house. We liked him. He didn't really have any money to offer. You should never give away your stuff for free, but I did. And I guess maybe you should because it worked out. But, um, and over the years, he would update me. This was 2014. So, yeah, it's a long eight years ago. He'd say, Oh, we're having a meeting with Will Smith. They're having a, everyone's always having a meeting with someone in Hollywood. There's always a meeting. Ah, oh, my people are meeting with these people, and those people are meeting with this person. And I know Denzel's cousin and all that stuff. It never happens. But so for years that happened. And then one day he's like, uh, I think Adam McKay wants to meet with us. And I was like, I don't know who that is, but I'll Google him. And I Google Adam McKay and I'm like, whoa, he's done a lot of movies. We went to his house. He was cool. He really liked the book. He said, then HBO sent me a contract that they're going to try doing it. And I thought, well, this is never going to happen, but that's cool. I get a little money. And then they start casting people for the show based on a Laker book written by me. I still don't think it's really going to happen. But when they cast like Sally Field, when I called my wife and I said, okay, they just cast someone who you can make an argument is the greatest woman, is the greatest actress in modern American history. Who do they cast? And she said, Meryl Streep. And I said, no. She said, Sally Field. I said, yes. And that was a moment. And then John C. Riley and Adrian Brody and Jason Clark. And all of a sudden you're on a set watching this, your book come to life. It's, uh, I had an Angie Thomas who wrote the hate you give on my podcast a couple years ago. And she, she was talking about how it's weird walking into your book literally onto a street that is your book. It's definitely weird. She was hundred percent right. Super trippy, but it's pretty great. That's, that's awesome. And do you have, I mean, do you have any, not impact on the show, but I mean, they, they, like you said, you were on set. Do they kind of still ask you things and kind of run some stuff by you at all? Or are you completely separated from, from the show now? No, I'm actually this season, I'm a producer and I don't actually know what that means, but it's a cool credit to have. That's but awesome. I get, um, yeah, I'm a, I was watching a, a rerun of Entourage not that long ago, and they called someone a producer and name only. And I was like, oh, my God, that's me. But I um, <laughs> I actually do. They send me every script. I read every script. Uh, Kevin Messick, who is Adam McKay's number two uh, and a producer on the show, asked me stuff all the time about, is this accurate? Does this work? What do you think of this? Uh, they send me all the reels for people auditioning for the different parts. So they've been more inclusive than they need to be. It's been, you know, and I feel like I've, this sounds corny. I feel like I've gained a lot of really good friends. Like a lot of the people involved in the show are just legit good people. A lot of the actors are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and it's also been a dream maker for a lot of young guys. Like Quincy Isaiah, who plays Magic, was Kalamazoo College three years ago. You know, like he, now he's playing Magic Johnson in an HBO show. And there are a lot of guys like that. And it just warms my heart. That's awesome. And uh, now, are you trying to pitch them your other books now too? You know, because I mean, I have to imagine similar to this, the story of the the Dallas Cowboys in the '90s must be some a pretty wild ride as well. I mean, I'm sure that could adapt pretty well <laughs> to the screen. Yeah, I have a lot of my I have a lot of my books optioned through the years, and you realize quickly it doesn't necessarily mean that much. Cowboys book is optioned, still optioned. Mets book optioned, still optioned. USFL book optioned. The second Laker book, HBO option, just in case they want to make extend the series to go to the Shaq Kobe years. But, um, you know, it's, it's always such a long shot. Like, truly, it's such a long shot. And there's so many meetings and there's so many positive vibes. Nobody ever tells anything negative. Everything's great. It's going to happen. And it really does. So I 
I mean, it'd be wonderful, but I don't have my fingers crossed or anything of that. I don't have high expectations. I mean, Michael Lewis always tells the story, right, of convincing Billy Bean to option like option the rights to Moneyball and him, but selling him on the idea that it would never be turned into a movie. And then Billy Bean's disappointment yeah. when he found out that Brad Pitt was turning up at his house and actually interested in turning into something real. So, yeah, it's it obviously seems a difficult process no matter who you are and no matter what the story is. I was raised by parents who, uh, my dad in particular, it's a very New York Jewish philosophy, which is expect the worst. That way you won't be disappointed. So I always sort of assume it's not going to be made. I guess then talking about cover uh, topics that you've covered and maybe expecting the worst from them in recent times, you also have, uh, you know, you're having a kind of relation, sort of relationship of sorts, I guess, with Brett Favre. Um, as a result of your book there, he's obviously been in the news recently for not the most positive of reasons. How much did that, in that opportunity you get to get to know someone, did that in any way surprise you? Um, it's obviously distant from maybe the image that people who like Brett Favre have as this kind of wholesome country boy in a sense. Were you at all stunned by the news? I mean, zero percent. I thought it was really funny when, um, Maybe two years ago, he posted a picture of himself with Donald Trump. And the comment on Twitter someone wrote was, Brett Favre posting another dick pic. And I just like, um, <laughs> he's kind of an asshole. He's like an asshole. He really is. He's not a good guy. And like, I, I think we should have washed our hands of Brett Favre when he sent a sideline reporter a dick pic. And it's hard to imagine you could do something worse than sending a sideline reporter a dick pic. But stealing money when you live in the poorest state in America from welfare recipients to fund a new volleyball arena, your alma mater, and your daughter's school because he's a member of the women's volleyball team. Also, not for nothing, you could have afforded to pay for it yourself, you cheap fuck. Like, I can't even, I said this today, I say it a lot, but I really mean it, so it's not just me repeating a line. You played 20 years in the NFL. You were exposed to so much diversity, okay? You played with guys who grew up in abject poverty. You played with guys who needed welfare to survive, whose families needed welfare to survive, okay? There's a million sports stories of guys scrapping and clawing to get out. And you, you're you so callous, you're so self-indulgent that you you need to have money stolen out of welfare ranks to pay for your freaking daughter's volleyball arena. And then the other thing I think since I'm on this role, how about these politicians who are so enamored by athletes that they like give them the money? Like you're the governor, Governor Bryant of Mississippi, and you're so into Brett Favre like because he threw a football far that you're willing to take money away from your own people because they didn't vote for you. Like the level of assholery all around that is staggering to me. So I don't, Brett Favre to me can, you know, whatever. I was going to say something I won't, but. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a depressing look all around. And obviously in the current era too of politics, it's just another uh, sad example of maybe how broken certain systems are. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not uplifting in any way. And I guess maybe keeping a certain political theme going, but you know, you spoke about uh, how you enjoyed writing the book about the USFL. That's another story where you have obviously Trump, Donald Trump being kind of heavily involved in its demise, um, which has been spoken about at different moments in time, maybe didn't get um, the level of sort of coverage or mention as it deserved. How how much, what kind of did you learn over the course of putting that book together that then really surprised you as stuff that wasn't covered in the sort of mainstream media narrative? 
No, you actually surprised me there. I thought you were on Herschel Walker because one can go Trump or Herschel off the U.S. <laughs> I mean, basically, uh, if, if you pick, cover a, pick your poison, yeah, if you cover a topic, it's yeah. it's you're kind of guaranteeing some kind of scandal in the future, I guess. So what, the better question is, when is Doug Flutie running for as some arch conservative senator somewhere? Um, <laughs> I um I felt like the U.S. of Val and my book, not because it's anything brilliant or anything like that, just because of the topic, should have been a manual for people on what he was going to be as president and his approach, which is basically if I were to sum up his philosophy with the USFL and I would say as president, it's let's burn this fucker down and get as much out of it for me as possible. Like that was literally him with the USFL. Let's burn this fucker down and let me get an NFL team out of this. And I don't care what happens to anyone else. I don't care about these players. I don't care about these owners. I don't care about the league. I don't care about TV. I certainly don't care about spring football. Get me an NFL franchise. And um, that's what he did. And, Every time something happened when he was president, I'd be like, well, there's an example for that with the USFL. Like he um, he signed Doug Flutie to this preposterously large and undeserved contract out of Boston College. Everyone knew he wasn't destined to be a great NFL quarterback, but Trump was such a moron. He thought he would be, and he was the shiniest toy. Well, he signed him to this preposterously large deal. I think it was the largest deal in football history at that point. And then he sends a letter to the commissioner of the league and the other owners saying, um, Everyone, this what I've done by signing Doug Flutie is brilliant for the USFL, and I expect all of you to contribute paying his salary. And I remember when I learned that it was the same time um, the whole uh, Mexico was gonna we're gonna we're gonna build a wall. And Mexico's gonna pay for it, and I was like, wait, what? This is the exact same shit that he pulled thirty years ago with the USFL, or like when people are like when people are defending him and saying like he would never meet with Putin in private franchise and promised to throw away the owners and when people are like he's such a savvy businessman he's such a smart businessman he they sued the u.s they sued the nfl trump led the lawsuit he's the one who hired their lawyers and he made himself the head witness the chief witness for the usfl and he came off like the worst least sympathetic witness ever he's just a freaking con man i don't i never understand how people follow him blindly ever i get con men i get why con men are good but I'm always like, this guy, this is the guy you're going to follow. So, And then I guess we can do the clean sweep then of uh, people wait. you've covered who've, who've Are you been doing in con offices. Men? <laughs> oh, okay. No, not con men. Not con okay. men. But Herschel Walker obviously is in the news on a daily basis as he bids to become a, a U.S. senator in uh, representing Georgia. A campaign that's being mired by controversy has... Another example, anything surprised you that's come out or in the way that he's behaved or represented himself based on what you were able to learn from your own research? So I'll tell you something interesting. And I don't say I'm very liberal, obviously. Um, I don't hate Herschel Walker. I feel bad for Herschel Walker because I think he is a useful idiot for the Republican Party. I really do. I don't I can't. I was going to say I don't think he's a horrible guy, but he's done some horrible things. I just think he's really simple. Like, I actually think Herschel Walker is a simpleton and a useful simpleton. And Trump wanted him to run because he wanted to force his own guy there as loyalist. Uh, he's a wildly famous Georgian. He's African-American. He's very conservative. And he's very simple and very dumb. And he doesn't know the issues. He's not well-spoken. He's not well-read. He lies and lies and lies about absolutely everything. And I feel bad for him because I just don't think he belongs on that stage. I don't even know... If skeptical if you said to him how many years does a senator serve that he would know the answer like i don't think he would know 
So through the magic of editing, our listeners will be totally unaware of the fact that there was a little bit of a pause between the previous answer and this question. They'll also be, we're now, you are our first guest to speak to us, first guest who spoke to us from an Uber, now the first guest to have spoken to us from multiple locations on the same episode. So sort of welcome back now from the airport. It makes me sound like I'm a jet setting, you know, like fashionista darting around the world, but when in truth, I'm in the basement of jfk eating a burrito yeah he didn't have yeah he didn't (laughs) yeah no i mean yeah it's not quite the uh the kind of experience that maybe people had been imagining for a second there but still we you know we really appreciate the effort that you've you're putting in to join us again and i guess we got sort of semi cut off over the course of my previous question and we won't keep you for too long so we only have a couple more but uh, what i wanted to know is you know the discussion that we had from your uber a lot of it was tied to the fact that, you know, you write these stories about these controversial, well, maybe not at the time, these figures, some of whom then go on to become controversial. And, you know, you take a pretty active role on Twitter, for example, in the Herschel Walker case, of speaking pretty openly about his campaign and, and kind of the insights that you have. Do you feel a direct responsibility in some respect once you have to become an active part of their life by writing their story do you feel a responsibility to continue to speak about them to tell what you know and to kind of counteract some of the messaging that's going on elsewhere in the media i wouldn't say i think of it that way but i can't really argue that like um i mean i wrote a very very thorough biography of brett Favre. i feel like i have a pretty good working knowledge of brett Favre. so when he comes up I wouldn't say I feel like it's not like I think to myself, oh, I have a responsibility to blank. But especially in the case of Favre and taking advantage of welfare recipients and Herschel Walker being a lunatic running for the Senate and Donald Trump being a monster, probably running for president again. Yeah, I feel like I have a working knowledge and I bring some authenticity to it. I'm not I'm not just some idiot ranting on Twitter. I'm an idiot who wrote books about these guys. So at least I have some knowledge. Um as my wife points out, it probably does me no good and does anyone any good. Like I wasn't able to change any election outcomes by writing these books and speaking out. So I don't know, but it would feel wrong not to like actually in the lead up to this book, my wife was like, you got to stop tweeting political for the next few days. And I tried and I just couldn't because the election's coming up. It matters to me. And I just was like, I can't, I can't set aside that just because I have a book to sell. Like I can't fully do that. Other controversial figures besides politicians, you know, obviously are athletes. And you wrote uh, actually now about 15 years ago, uh, a book on Barry Bonds, who is a very uh, controversial figure in baseball. Going into that, going into writing that, do you have an open mind? Do you try and keep an open mind or do you kind of go in, you know, already kind of already knowing what you're going to discover isn't going to look good? <laughs> you never know what you're going to discover. That's the thing. Never. And I definitely went in with preconceived notions of Barry Bonds because I covered him when I was at Sports Illustrated and I found him horribly unlikable. But it's almost like your job is to find out why someone is unlikable. And a lot of times that leads you to actually having sympathy for a figure. You know, so, yeah, he's unlikable and he treats people like crap. But his dad treated him like crap and his dad was unlikable. And his Willie Mays, his godfather, sort of in name only, but his godfather was unlikable and raised he was raised like a wolf. So if you raise a kid like a wolf, he becomes a wolf, you know, and I just think or it doesn't mean I, I come to like Barry Bonds, but I can understand how he ended up who he was. Um, 
I never write a book intending to do blank. I never write a book intending to praise, intending to demolish, intending to never. I go into it with as open a mind as I humanly possible as I can. I, I don't want to write the book where I'm judging someone. It's not my goal to judge him. And I guess just, just overall, I mean, I, I think you'd have great insight into this. What's your general feeling about the, the steroids era in baseball? I, I mean, do you, is it just, it's just a part of the game? Is, is it, is it a mark on the game? How, how do you feel looking back on it now? Um, I hate it. But the one thing that's changed for me is I was very anti-steroid guys getting in the hall. And I know it's imperfect, but I was like, you should never deliberately let someone in the hall. Like, that's ridiculous. Barry Bond does not belong in the hall. Mark McGuire, no hall. Sosa, Jose Canseco. No. But then they let David Ortiz in. We all know David Ortiz was cheating. And truth of the matter is they let Mike Piazza in. And we all knew Mike Piazza was cheating. And to me, if you're going to let guys in because you like them. Like, David Ortiz basically got in the Hall of Fame because all the writers liked him. Because he was a fun character and a fun figure. Then you have to let Bonds in, and you'll have to let McGuire in, and Sosa, and Canseco. You, you, it doesn't work that way. So I've done a 180. I actually think Bonds should get in the hall. I think the hall's a joke, but I think if you're going to let the cheaters in, Pudge Rodriguez, these guys, we know use. If you're going to let them in, fine, but then you have to let the jerks in too. That makes a lot of sense. And, yeah, especially once you've accepted that it's an imperfect system to try and apply any cons- sort of inconsistent standards to it seems totally illogical. I guess tying on a little bit, both to the baseball theme, and, and so it's my final question, and, and also what Frank just mentioned in terms of going into it, the sort of, we've, we've, asked, we've already asked you a little bit about the backlash to destroying people's images of stars that they love, and then also the interactions with the stars themselves. I'm sure this is a topic that, and an experience that you have discussed ad nauseum, and you probably don't want to be have as your kind of career defining, uh, you know, sort of highlight. But obviously, one of the things that brought you a little bit maybe into the fame from a public perspective was the sort of response to the interview that you, well, the piece that you wrote about with 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 John Rocker. How how much has that in, influenced how you've then approached work in the future? Has it at all? Or have you just, just decided that was kind of one very sort of unfortunate, extremely unusual interaction with a, with a famous athlete? I don't think it's impacted my reporting very much. I mean, if there's a lesson for me and maybe journalists in the rocker experience, it's you just have to let people talk and you're there to listen, not there to argue or debate, you know, which is really important. I wasn't there to debate him. I didn't agree with anything you were saying, but I wasn't there to debate him. I was there to profile him. But, I mean, it comes up in one out of 20 interviews, probably. I'm totally comfortable with it. I don't run away from anything that happened. I, I know I did the right thing. Um, I get a little, I don't get annoyed, but when people are like, talk about how that changed my career. And it's kind of like, I was, I'm not saying this in any braggy way. I was already a writer at Sports Illustrated. It's not like they hired me after that story. I was already there. Maybe I put my name on the map. I guess it did. I wouldn't say long term. I don't know. Would I be in a different place if it weren't for the John Rocker story? I don't really think so. I don't know. It's still, it's still the thing that I'll tell you what it does. It makes me feel old because um, every year some different professors invite me back to speak to their classes. And right after Rocker, if you said, how many of you guys know who John Rocker is? Every hand went up. Five years after, maybe half the hands went up. Ten years after, a quarter of the hands. And now literally nobody under the age of 25, 26, whatever, 
has any clue who John Rocker is. And I actually kind of love that because like Brett Favre, he really belongs in the dustpan of history. Actually, speaking of potentially being a dustpan of history, I have a similar story. I teach, I teach physiology and I do a lecture on blood doping and I talk about Lance Armstrong. And now I would say less than 50% of my students know who Lance Armstrong is, (laughs) which is crazy to even think about that. No one would even know him. (laughs) It's kind of just though. I think that's just yeah, that. maybe. There, <laughs> you decide to cheat. You took a shortcut, and now you're kind of your footnote to history. Not even you're just some guy. I mean, he's the greatest cyclist of all time, but he's not. So sorry, buddy. <laughs> so, so I, I I have one last question for you, and it's kind of more of I guess a fun question. So you've covered a lot of uh, teams that have quite the backstory to them. So you did a, a book on the '86 Mets the 90s Cowboys, uh, the the Lakers dynasty, and then also the yes, new Lakers dynasty with Shaq and Kobe. If you had to be on one of those teams, what team would you have liked to have been a part of that you would have enjoyed the most from what you've recorded about how, how the life was? I think the 86 Nets. Number one, it was New York City at a really crazy and fun time. 80s New York, grimy, dirty. Uh, that team was really, really close. <laughs> They hung together, they rolled together, they were tight with each other. Plus, well, I was going to say I don't do cocaine, and cocaine was the choice of the Cowboys, but I think a lot of Mets were doing coke too. So <laughs> I could just be a heavily, I'm not even a drinker, but I would be a heavily drinker, heavily drinking uh, middle reliever for the 86 Mets and be pretty happy. So I'm going with the Mets. I, I think a nice. lot of those teams you covered might have been doing some cocaine. I <laughs> think they might have been. Yeah. I don't think maybe that's the through line. Maybe that's the through line. <laughs> not the Shaq, I guess. But otherwise, yeah, although. I got Lamar Odom sneaking onto those, right? So he wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. Okay, that was to come. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta cover that that section of their dynasty then to to, yeah, to maybe one day. complete the process. And then uh, my final question, totally final question. Then, obviously, you know, we always have in mind sort of guests we'd love to have on sort of the ideal guest, a story that we'd like to cover. You get to cover all of these fascinating teams or athletes. Is there someone out there who you would love to be able to write about who, as of yet, you've just not had the chance or not been able to put the story together? Do I have a shirt on? I think I do. Tupac. Okay. I would love to write a Tupac biography. And what's the, like what's the kind of challenge to doing that or what's preventing that from being able to? He's been written about a lot. I'm sort of square pegged a little bit as a sports writer. Um, it would just be a leap, be a real departure, but I definitely hope to do it someday. It'd be really cool. That is, a, I guess, a surprising answer, yeah, because not to square peg you, but I guess I was expecting someone more in the, in some way, shape, or form involved in sports. But yeah, it'd be a certainly, I guess it fits your type in terms of maybe characters or figures within history who have multiple aspects to themselves and, and maybe elements that people don't properly understand and, and different perceptions depending on on who the audience is. I'm just a big Tupac fan. And I find his life really interesting. Oh. Now, there we go. Simplified it even yeah. more. Yep. But promise that that would be the final question. And obviously we know you're going to have a flight at some point. And we do appreciate the fact that you have ta- managed to squeeze us in at different points of your day. And Jeff, it's really been a pleasure to have you on. Um, I guess before you go, if you can give us a, a sort of plug for our listeners who will have enjoyed this, I guess they can your book, where they can buy it, and then also where they can sort of follow you and interact with you in any way. 
if you're uh, if you're into uh, Jewish Californian sports writers who tweet about liberal politics at Jeff Perlman and you can buy my books everywhere. I think they're pretty much selling everywhere now. So uh, perfect. There we go. You, 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 you know the demographic of listeners we most appeal to. So you've, there you go. <laughs> you've nailed it. Well, Jeff, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and have a safe flight. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye, bro. Yeah.